All right, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 17 through 34 this morning. Let me go ahead, let me just encourage you to go ahead and turn your Bible there. Um, this doctrinal study we've been in has led us to a point where we are beyond the essentials. We, we've moved past those essential doctrines that we would suggest are required for Christianity um, and moved into some doctrines that really distinguish us in denominational affiliation or distinguish us from other groups of Christianity. Last week, we began our study of the ordinances. Now, we treat those a little bit differently than the typical second-hand beliefs. We think they are essential in the, in the practice of them because Christ commanded them. Uh, but we see and have been able to recognize that in history, there's been discussion about modes, methodologies, and the, and the ways that they're practiced. And, and one of the distinctions, one of the ways we're distinguished from, the, from many other people in the world and the history of the church is that we hold to, like most other Protestant churches, we hold to two sacraments or two ordinance, ordinances is what we call them. The Roman Catholic Church had come to hold in hold seven. Uh, Greek Orthodox and other Orthodox churches had come to hold seven sacraments in the church. Um, I'll just say this just since I brought them up. Uh, I, I would say and I, we would teach that there are Christians in the Roman Catholic Church, but the church as a whole teaches heretical doctrine and would not be considered part of Orthodox Christianity, although there probably are Christians within it. I've, I've known some that I believe really believe in Jesus, but with all the other added things they have, they've gone beyond the gospel. That's why the Reformation happened, because it was a call for the church to come back to the gospel. It had been displaced by tradition and practice and, and the authority, the usurped authority, I, I believe, of the papacy and, and church uh, tradition. And, and so there was a call back to the scriptures, back to the truth of the gospel. So, so we would suggest that there's other greater di- differences, but that's one of the differences. This distinguishes us as a Protestant group that we hold two ordinances, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. One, with the baptism we just practiced. Last week I taught it, and, and I came to this final point. We believe everyone who has made a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ should be Baptized, so so even that perspective distinguishes us from other people in the Protestant tradition. So some of our brothers in the Reformed tradition, many of our brothers and sisters in the Reformed tradition, believe that baptizing infants is is a credible baptism. In fact, Jake was baptized as an infant. We would suggest that baptism isn't effective. It isn't it it isn't a practice. That, that means anything until there's faith in one's heart, until one's heart's been regenerate, and then they can express the faith that leads them to walk in obedience to the Christ, and that's why we have baptism. So we believe everyone who has made a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ should be baptized just as we did it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is our perspective. Today, we transition from that first ordinance of baptism to the Lord's Supper. It's the second ordinance, so the second ongoing tradition that Christ commanded for his people uh, that is intentional and purposeful. Um, Like baptism, this has been the topic of a lot of debate, a lot of discussion in church history. Today, my hope is, my intention is to lay out biblically our perspective that we hold and teach. And then because this is part of our statement of faith, we we as members of the church. This is what we call each other to walk in unity in. If, if you have a different perspective, if you come from a different persuasion, a different um, 
a, a different view on what the supper is, uh, we would just suggest as members of this church that we walk in unison under this belief, under this um, position. And so that's what we're going to try to do today. Uh, it's, it's especially important because we actually practice this every week. Um, and it's worthwhile to be able to come to the table and practice it in a way that we understand what's going on. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 34. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dig in. Okay, so let's read. In the follow- but, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Just imagine if that was said about your church gatherings. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part... <clears throat> For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat and Eat this bread and drink the cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill And some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things. I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Father... Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to know and see, hear your truth. This is your word. I pray that you would enable me to explain it clearly. Um, I pray, Father, that this would not just be a tradition we follow, but that you would work it out in our hearts, that as, as your people, that this tradition would, 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 would contain a, a substance that's meaningful, beneficial, helpful. I pray, Father, that as we sit here today and just consider this, that even as it happened last week, that we would, your people, be challenged to walk in a way that is worthy of, of who you are and what you've done for us. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Now, if you don't know anything about the Corinthian church, I think it's pretty easy to see in this passage they got some serious problems, right? Like they have got, they are a mess. When you come together, it's not for the good, it's for the worse. It's not making you better. It's actually causing you more 
trouble. There's all kinds of division in your group. And it becomes evident, not just in the way that they gather, but the way that they participate in the Lord's Supper. Some of them are selfishly overindulging, getting drunk. Now, you're going to have to drink an awful lot of our juice if you think you're going to get drunk at our church. And you might get sick before you get drunk. But it's overindulgence, it's self-centered, overindulgence, I want it all mentality. Coming together, back, back in the day when we used to have donuts and, and, and bagels in, in the morning, you'd walk through and, and you'd see people just mounds of donuts when other people are left without, you know. And it's like there, there's a demonstration there. That's what he's talking about. There's a demonstration that when you're so thoughtless of other people, when you're thinking of only yourself, you overindulge. You're not, you're not being considerate of one another. That's the problem, it's, 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 not just the, it's not just the fact that some of them are eating a lot and some of them are having a good time together. There's absolutely no concern for one another. It's revealing a self-centered, selfish desire for more and a lack of concern for one another. And well, Some are getting drunk and others are getting nothing. They're going hungry. They're, they aren't able to participate at all. There's a lot of different ideas about what's causing this. Rich, poor, um, ways that they were participating in the Lord's Supper, the, the, the practice, if you will. We don't get all of those details, so I don't want to go into that at this point. I just want I, the, the point is, he's making, they've got some serious divisions, and it becomes clear and evident in the way that they participate in this supper together. And so, so he makes the point in verse 19, he actually makes the point that, hey, you know, these divisions... There is some fruit that come out of them because the, the true Christian, the true convert is actually going to be revealed where the false convert is going to be revealed. There should be a distinction. There should be a difference between true converts and, and false converts. That division will exist in every church, but it doesn't make this situation less serious. Just because there's some good fruit that might come out of it doesn't make this situation less serious. It doesn't mean that there shouldn't be some, some reason to try to correct it, some some act or some repentance that brings them to a place where they begin to act differently. And so, not only will Paul not commend them, but he's going to correct them. He's going to call them to repentance. He's going to set them straight. And he does that beginning in verses 23 through 26 by, he does it in two ways. First, in 23 through 26, he shows us this is what the Lord's Supper is. This is what it means. This is what you do with it. And then in verses 27 through 34, through the end of the chapter, he, he gives them instruction about their attitudes, their heart attitudes, as they participate in it, as they walk in it. So, so let's just start 23 through 26. There's a lot of freedom given here. He doesn't tell us in this passage how often we should take it. He doesn't tell us whether we must use wine or we are okay to use juice. He doesn't tell us the the, the frequency or exactly what, whether it should happen at the beginning of service or whether it should happen at the end of service, whether it should happen weekly or monthly or quarterly or sometimes people do it once a year. He doesn't tell us whether or not to, to use um, individual cups of juice or wine or individual little pieces of bread. He doesn't, doesn't make the distinction between the way we participate in it and the way others participate in it by having a whole loaf, which you come up and you pull a chunk of the loaf off of and, and dip it. That's intinction. Now, we don't do that partly because I have an aversion to soggy bread, but no, it's just not, that's not really, it's got nothing to do with me. That would be self-centered, right? We don't do that because I think this is a better way to practice it. 
Um, but plus, if you've ever done that and you see what that cup looks like after, whew, sorry, that, I apologize. <laughs> My mind's running. I'll draw it back in. The, the idea here is, is that it's not that there's a lot of freedom in the way it's practiced and what's going on. There's, a, there, there's not explicit instruction. There's a lot of opportunity for us to practice this in different ways. One of the, just to give you a clear example of how different we can be, we use juice. Some churches use juice and wine. Some churches demand that we just use wine. When we're in Africa and we're observing the Lord's Supper with the, the people in uh, Tokal and in Kappa, we actually use Vimto. It's a fruit-flavored soda. It but you can't get grape juice there at all. There's, it's just not available. So we use what we have. That's the idea. And, and, and the reality is, is that that's okay. We, we want to be careful. We don't want to just be stupid about it. We don't want to just be flippant about it. There's a problem. We don't want to go too far. But we don't want to dismiss that there's a lot of, of, of leeway here as we walk through this. But the, the Corinthians... They've obviously forgot, not just about the practice of it, they've obviously forgotten exactly what it is. I think it's safe to say that they're not the example to follow. They're not the ones that we want to, um, to, to imitate. They've got serious problems. But what Paul teaches them, we, we, we can take to heart, we can, we can grab hold of, we can... Remind our, our, ourselves with so that as we participate, especially week to week, that we're reminded what this is and what it's about. We believe, this is, this is a summary of our belief and what I think Paul is teaching here. We believe the Lord's Supper is a memorial meal of remembrance, communion, and hope that continues to make the gospel known. We believe the Lord's Supper is a memorial meal of remembrance, communion, and hope that continues to make the gospel known. As a memorial meal, there is no saving power in the elements. It's not as if you come and you take the elements and, and, and thereby are saved. Well, I, I ate the bread and I drank the cup and now I'm a Christian. That's not it at all. It is memorial. This is, this is the way it seems to be being set up both in this passage and when Jesus taught about it. And you can read about that in the three synoptic gospels. Each Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell of the night that he instituted this supper. It seems to be a memorial, something done in remembrance. These elements, they don't have any power to save. They're special. They're symbols of something, something greater, some greater truth, but they don't actually have any power in and of themselves. As a memorial, we do not teach from the Roman Catholic doctrine of substantiation that these things become anything more than bread and juice. So the Roman Catholics taught that, the, that the, it's called transubstantiation and, and that after the blessing of the priest, the elements literally turn into the body and blood in a literal way. You're eating flesh and drinking blood. Uh, that that was, finds, its, finds its place somewhere in the hundreds. It gets affirmed in the 1200s. And then after the Reformation in the 1500s, they decided this is Catholic dogma. This is the way we see it. This is the way we teach it. 
it's not the way the early church taught it. It's not the way the, the, the apostles or the disciples that sat at that meal would have seen it. When Jesus Christ is holding up the bread and saying, this is my body and this is my blood as he held the cup, they would have not thought, oh, he's about to give us flesh to eat. They would not have thought he's about to make us drink blood. It, it would have been no different than hearing him say, I am the true vine in John 15, or I am the door in John 10. He spoke symbolically, figuratively, a number of times about who he was. It would have, wouldn't have been received in any other way. So to think that these things become some, some literal representation or some, some literal flesh and literal blood, I, th- I think is outside the, the, the pale of orthodoxy. I think that's it's wrong. Consubstantiation, the Lutheran. So as Luther went through the just a note, John Wycliffe back in the 1300s actually challenged this idea. He was one of the earliest reformers before Luther. But Luther in the 1500s, when the Reformation really got going hard and fast, Luther decides, well, we can't teach transubstantiation, but he also didn't want to let it go. He didn't want to let the presence of Christ go. And so he came up with what was called consubstantiation, which is a, it's, it's the body and blood of Christ is present in the elements it's present in the bread, it's present in the juice or the wine, but they aren't literally changing into those things. Kind of like water being in a sponge when you soak the water in. He's saying that the body of Christ is in the bread and the blood of Christ is in the juice, that it's in it, kind of like water in a sponge. Those, those, both of those views are extra biblical. They were built upon tradition. In fact, Luther, if you go back and you study consubstantiation and you study his the, the ways that he began to talk about the presence of the physical Christ, like Christ took on a person and then he ascended into heaven, Luther had to come up with a whole, um, a whole extra biblical view of how Jesus Christ was in his body able to be in all places at all times so that he could teach consubstantiation. It's all tradition. It's a desire to hang on to something that you learned as a kid and just, feel comfortable with, and you don't want to, you don't want to seemingly uh, swing too far the other direction. And, but, but realistically, biblically, there's no reason to believe anything other than this is a memorial meal. The, the, these are extra biblical perspectives. And so as, as, as we look at it now as memorial meal, we have to recognize that it's not also a sacrifice. It's another way that it's been taught in the church. We just sang a song. In fact, we just sang a song that says, lead me to the cross, right? When we sing that song, we're not saying, lead me to the cross you hung on in a physical way so that I can see you hanging there and experience your crucifixion in a visible, physical way, right? When we sing that, we recognize the figurative language of it. His cross was torn down the day after he was crucified. It was done. That cross is gone. It doesn't stand anywhere anymore. He hung on it, was removed from it, and then buried in the ground. So we recognize the figurative language of that. We recognize that there's a memorial idea of coming to the cross. Another song we sing, um, Ash actually brought this up a few weeks ago, as we sang a song called Come to the Altar. We don't have an altar to come to anymore. There's no altar in the church. The altar is the cross. These are tables with a meal set in which Jesus has invited us to. They are not a sacrifice. His sacrifice, as we sing, is finished. When he said the words, it is 
finished didn't mean that he had finally and ultimately and eternally fulfilled salvation. What it meant was that the sacrifice for sin was done. There's nothing else to add to it. To to think that in some way his body is here in these trays, his body and his blood is contained in these elements, is to suggest that that sacrifice continues on. There is no sacrifice anymore. Jesus died and was buried. That is enough. It happened. And that death in real place, in real time, is sufficient to forgive and enable your forgive your sins and enable your salvations. We come to a table that Jesus set. He's the host of the meal. He's invited you and he's the host in that he's the one we spiritually figuratively feast on as we remember the body and the blood in the bread and the juice or the wine. There is no altar. There's no place for an altar in Christian worship. Jesus is not continuing to be sacrificed for our sins. One time for all, that is it. It is finished. But we recognize as we talk about these things, there's there's literal talk and there's figurative talk. And unfortunately, there's a number of churches that as they translate and understand these things, they immediately move to a literal perspective. In fact, when we first moved into this church, this stage didn't have this little projection out here on the front. It stopped right here, and there was a wooden banister that went all the way around it. And here in the center section, there was a removable piece that you could pick up and remove. And only the priest or someone who had been consecrated, ordained in the church, could walk up onto the stage. Because in the middle of the stage, make sure I don't... That table that we're now serving coffee and refreshments on, still serving a purpose of serving food, (laughs) was called the altar. And they would, they would bless the elements, the juice and the, or, or the wine and the bread. They would bless the elements and they would lock them in that cabinet because they had become holy. Because in the teaching of the Episcopal Church, there is a transition happening and no one could touch them. And you had to come to the priest and, he had, and the priest stood between you and the elements. And this was a holy ground. That, that altar, altars are for sacrifice, right? We don't need them. Tables are for sitting down and dining at. They they speak to fellowship. In fact, we're going to talk about it in just a minute. They speak to the communion, the relationship that we have, both with Christ and one another. So this is a memorial meal, but it doesn't stop at the memorial meal. It it, it speaks of of remembrance, it speaks of of communion, and it speaks of hope. Let me just walk through those. The Lord's Supper reminds us of Jesus' past sacrifice that saved us from God's wrath. The Lord's Supper reminds us of Jesus' past sacrifice that saved us from God's wrath. But looking in verses 23 through 26. Well, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. This is not Paul's... He didn't think this up, right? Like, he didn't make this up. I told you what Jesus told me. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember me. Think on me. Look back on me. There's this past tense perspective that we're looking back on. Jesus is about to do something in in real time and in real history that's going to make an eternal difference in the lives of his people. Think back on me, he says. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This is my cup, 
new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. How? In remembrance of me. Do it remembering him. There's a phrase. There's the, it, let, me, let me illustrate it this way. In the, in, the, in the stories that we use when we go into Africa, it's called Creation Across. It's an evangelism story that starts at creation and goes all the way to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then you call people to trust him as a savior. And we work on that and we memorize it um, and so that once we get there and we're speaking through a translator, we don't get all tripped up and we can tell the story and they hear the story in a, in a um, similar fashion every time they hear it. So we tell that story, and there's a phrase in that story, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus is saying, remember me because of what I did. Remember me because of my life was given as your sacrifice. I died in your place and for your sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's rooted in, it's, 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 pertains to or comes from, let me say it like that, comes from Hebrews 9, 22. But in it, there's an admission that without some death, without the shedding of blood, without someone dying, sin cannot be forgiven. So God told Adam and Eve that, that death was the consequence. If they, do, if they disobeyed him and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they, and, and they did, and death was... The consequence, death entered the world. The first animal died after Adam and Eve ate the fruit. God made clothes from the animal's skin. He covered their nakedness. There's an image of covering happening. He covered their nakedness with clothes made from the animal's skin. And they didn't die immediately, but they were sent out of his presence, not in a physical way physical way they fell into sin they were the, the the image of god that they had been created in was marred instead of become more like him they became less like they were created to be but death death and sin became distinct features in humanity the very next chapter after the fall into sin is the story of cain and abel cain killing his brother because he's jealous And just a few passages, just a few verses later in chapter 4, again, Lamech is out saying, I killed a man because he wounded me. Death and sin, sin against one another, division, it's intrinsic in who we've become. And the only way past that, the only way to be forgiven of that, the only hope to, to see that undone is for Jesus to come and die in our place and for our sin. See, he would change all of that. He would pour his blood out to make a new covenant, to make a new agreement between God and man. And God would do all the work to pay the debt, to make sure that the covenant was was kept. And we would become the beneficiaries. On, On the cross, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath against our sin so that you and I could drink of the cup of salvation and life. You think about that. And every time we come to this table, every time we step up to this table, this is not just some tradition. This is not just some thing that's flippant and doesn't have any meaning. There's a recognition that this is his blood. 
poured out on our behalf that we have become beneficiaries of. This is a, a real man. As, as real and true as the bread and the juice are as we hold them, there was a real man who walked in the face on the face of the earth in a real time, at a real place, and in a real moment. God, the Father, saw fit to crush His Son so that by His stripes we could be healed. He drank the whole cup of God's wrath on your part. Another way to perceive it, as we consider from the perspective of Adam and Eve, is that in the moment that Adam and Eve heard the serpent say, come on, eat it. Take of it, eat it. Jesus says, hey, take and eat this. My, my body, my blood poured out for you. That instead of all the consequences of the curse, you get all the benefits of my death and my life. This reminds us of, our, of, of the past work that Christ has done, the past sacrifice that Christ made that saves us from God's wrath. We do this in remembrance of him and who he was, what his life was about. It's, it's, it's a meal of remembrance and it's a meal of communion. The Lord's Supper reminds us of our present salvation and communion with Jesus and his people. We're, we're not just looking back. The reality is his benefits, his blessings, there, there are present day benefits. There's present day truths. There's present day realities. We are able to walk in fellowship in union with our savior and one another because of what christ has done the the lord's supper reminds us of our present salvation and communion with jesus and his people communion it's more than just another name for the lord's supper oftentimes we call it that we either talk about the lord's supper or communion and we use those names interchangeably but it's so much more than just a name it speaks to our intimate fellowship our intimate connection with him. Jesus talks about in, in, in one of his last words to his followers was, you know, go make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. And, and, and I am with you to the end of the age. In John, he teaches that when we are his children, when we are sheep of his shepherd, or when he's the shepherd and we're the sheep, when, when we are his people, that he comes and he takes up residence within us, that God literally indwells us. There's an intimate connection. But these Corinthians, so inwardly and selfishly focused, there's no way for them to even consider the communion that they have with Jesus Christ, nor the communion and the fellowship that they're supposed to have with one another. They're off on both of these counts. They've forgotten what this meal is all about. And they are using it for their own selfish gain. But Jesus, what he's done has brought us, oh man, present day, real fellowship with him. Real participation in all the blessings. In Romans 8, Paul describes some of those blessings. Romans 8, 1. There is now no, not will be, not was, now. Present day benefit of being found in Christ. No condemnation. Well, wait a minute. I, I live with myself. I, 
I, I should be condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans eight seventeen he speaks of us being heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. In Romans eight thirty nine, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. Absolutely nothing. Life and death, nope. Angels, demons, nope. Prince, powers, principalities, powers, and nothing. Absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. These are blessings brought to us by our union with Christ. Well, how did we get them? Because we are united to Christ. And Romans 6, 8 kind of gives us an explanation as he builds his way to the argument in Romans 8. If we have died with Christ, you hear that? If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We are so closely connected. We have such an intimate relationship with Christ that as we trust in him, in some spiritual, mysterious way, we have died with him. We are no longer who we were. We're new creations in Christ, not only if we, now if we have died with him, we believe that we will also live with him. That starts now. Present day reality. We have relationship, intimate fellowship, union with Christ. Because we have it in his death, we also have it in his life. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of who we are. You just consider this for just a moment, that you and I, sinful people, rebellious people, people who are on, got this ongoing struggle against sin can actually step into the presence of a holy God, to a perfect God, to a powerful God, to, to a God who is pure. Without any shifting shadow, no darkness in him at all. And yet we're welcomed into his presence. Every time we approach these tables to take these elements we are reminded of the fellowship that we have because of what Christ has done. But it doesn't end with fellowship with Christ. You see, Jesus didn't just save me. He didn't just save you. There's a reality that that this is about us. This is about us coming together and enjoying the fellowship. This is why it was such a big deal to Paul as these Corinthian people were, were... living it up, doing their own thing, concerned about themselves, totally denying that Christ, they had fellowship with Christ, totally denying that they had fellowship with one another. I can't, I can't commend you for this at all. But I can correct you. And so he does. This is a massive problem. And, and he had already dealt with it to a degree in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And you, you could flip over the verses on the screen behind me. 1 Corinthians 10 Verse 17, because there is one body, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. There's a little bit more explanation there. You can go back and read it, but it just that's enough to give you this perspective. We take of the bread together. We are one body. We are members together of his body. This is true of us. Jesus didn't just die for you or for me. He died for us. I am not, and you are not, the only one united with Christ. We all, as his people, are united in his death and his life. Every time we come to the table. Now, thankfully, I've not seen this here, but but there should be, and, well, I, I believe it happens here. There should not be a competition to get up here and make sure you get the fullest 
cup of juice. <laughs> like the way we do it, I don't think there's any reason to fight for that stuff. But there should be a recognition of one another. One of the most beautiful things is getting to stand in the, as I stand in the back and I watch people come take of the elements of getting to see people getting it for someone else. To serve one another, to be concerned for one another. This, this is a representation of our union with him together. So, so, so there's the communion, there's the remembrance, and then the Lord's Supper reminds us of our hope that Jesus will return and fulfill his salvation promises. So it's not just about looking back, and it's not just about, okay, here's this real tangible example of the union we have in Christ together. It's about looking forward. In in verse 26, Paul kind of implies this or infers this when he writes, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. When? Until he comes. On the night Jesus instituted the meal, he talked about not drinking of of the the, the fruit of the vine until we, we are in heaven together with him, implying, teaching, that there's going to be a moment at which we sit down at a table with him in real physical presence. That you and me and every one of his people, how this looks in heaven, I don't know, man, this is a massive party sitting in the presence of our Savior, seeing him with our own eyes, hearing him with our own ears, take and eat. Yes, it's a reminder of the past. There is a past perspective, a look into the history of redemption as as Jesus Christ confronted the reality of our sin and died in our place. Yes, there's a reminder of present reality of our position in Christ together right now. The blessings and benefits that have come to us right now. Now, and there are, is a reminder to look fu- to, to the future day, the future reality. Jesus is coming again. This is not the end. His work of sacrifice is finished, but his history of redemption will be fulfilled when he steps back into history. And our eyes, our very own eyes, see our very own Savior. That we can stand in his presence. We can hold his hand. We, like Mary, can sit at his feet. We can hear his voice. Who knows, we might even be so bold as to wrap our arms around him and hug our Savior. This is a real thing. And every time we come to the table, as real as the bread is that we hold, as real as the juice is that we drink, the reality of the day that he will return and call us to his table that he's invited us to and that he's reserved a spot for us at, that day is that certain. And every time we take it, we we, we not only have the opportunity to remember it, We proclaim this. We proclaim the gospel truth. We make the gospel truth known to one another that there's a day coming that each of us get to enjoy this in His presence. We believe. We believe the Lord's Supper is a memorial meal of remembrance, of communion, and and of hope that continues to make the gospel known. So, so, We come to the second part of Paul's instruction. We need to take this and approach it in a manner that is worthy. 
In a manner that is worthy of what he has done and what it represents about what he has done, will do, and is doing. So so let's just look at it again just carefully. Whoever therefore eats the bread, because of what it is, he's saying, because of what he has commanded us to, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now this, this next part, I mean, we need to, this is serious. That is why many of you are weak and ill. Some have died. If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So, so primarily, we, we need to recognize this is written to Christian people. Everybody, as far as, I, as far as I know, in Protestant circles, everybody would agree that you must be a believer to receive communion. You must be a Christian to, to truly be able to receive communion, to be in a place where you can receive communion. These are Christian people he's talking to you. And there's actually this reality happening that God is bringing judgment on them so that they wouldn't eventually be condemned. He's disciplining them. Some of them are getting sick. Some of them are weak. Some are even dying. So that they wouldn't be condemned along with the world. Now, I don't, I don't know where you're at in your life and I don't know all the struggles you're facing in your life. This is a difficult word, but, but, but know this. This is Discipline. It is not wrath. It isn't God's wrath on you. It is discipline for you. Jesus Christ drank the cup of God's wrath so that we could drink the cup of, God, uh, of life, so that we could drink from the cup of salvation. But if we approach this table in an unworthy manner, He may discipline us so that we don't end up condemned. And as difficult as it is to say, it should be a thank you, praise you. I'm so glad you love me enough to trip me so that I fall on my face so that I don't run off that cliff. But brothers and sisters, it's, it's important that we take this in a, in a right way in a right manner, not just understand what it is, but take it in a, in a manner that is worthy. Not saying that we intrinsically are worthy, but with a heart and an attitude that's bent t- towards Him. We believe the Lord's Supper is a memorial meal of remembrance, communion, and hope that continues to make the gospel known, so we take the Lord's Supper in faith. In faith, we confess our sin, and in faith, we trust that Jesus, the Son of God, is our only hope of salvation. Imagine coming to the table today. Imagine coming to the table at any time and thinking, oh, well, I just did this good work, and now He owes me salvation. Or any good work that you might do, for that matter, totally undermines what the, what the elements represent. Totally, d- d- ah, just... 
it destroys the whole purpose of his death if you think in some way that you're able to work your, your, your way into his presence and way into his, that you work hard enough that he's now in your debt in some way or that he, he owes you something. Totally undermines what he came to do. Totally removes the need for Jesus' death. No. We, we come in faith, trusting that he is the only way. And as we take these elements, we, we're confessing that Jesus, if you had not put on flesh and dwelt among us, hung on a cross in my place and for my sin, allowed your blood to be shed so for, for my forgiveness, I'd have no other hope. We take the Lord's Supper in faith. We take the Lord's Supper in obedience. This is a command of Christ. To not do it, to not participate in it, to avoid it. What's well, disobedience? Jesus, at, at, in, in the Great Commission, Jesus says, Go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey all that I have commanded. This is one of those commands. This is one of those things that we're to continue in doing. And as often as we do it, we're supposed to do it in remembrance of Him. It's not just about obedience to Jesus' command to a supper, but it includes commands about how we're to live all of life. We're, we're really quick to talk about the things that we need to do or that we've got uh, agendas for, that, that this is what I need. Very seldom are, are we quick to talk about, I, I, I'm doing this simply because Jesus has died for me and I want to obey him as my Lord and my Christ. So, uh, partly, that's why baptism naturally precedes the Lord's Supper. You know, I, I said this last week, and we, we're not going to go into it too deep. I'm actually going to write something this week for some wisdom. Uh, I, I hope it'll be help, helpful as you discern these things, but... We, we don't guard the table. We don't ask for your baptism card before you walk up and you take communion. We're, we're, not, we're, we're, we're probably not going to start doing that. But, but if you come and you take the elements, recognizing that Jesus has commanded you to be baptized, and yet you continue to not be baptized, how can you think that you can obey Him in one thing and not another? This is disobedience, Period. If there's unconfessed sin or willful rebellion in your life, you're not seeking and desiring obedience. How can you approach a table that represents that, that you're saved and that you're new and that you have a new way of life and you enjoy all the benefits of life and yet your life isn't lived in submission to Him? That's exactly what was happening in Corinth. They were, they were disobeying Him all over the place. And it was evident in their division and in their infighting, their selfish perspectives and the way they treated one another around the table. If you realize that you're not in obedience, what do you do? You approach him in faith and repentance. He's not looking for penance. He's not looking for you to earn enough now credibility to come... Remember, He is the only way. His forgiveness of your sin is it. Confess your sin to Him. Walk in repentance. Turn from that sin. Strive to see that sin put to death. 
Turn from it. We take the Lord's Supper in faith. We take the Lord's Supper in uh, obedience. We take the Lord's Supper in repentance. Because not one of us, not any person in this room is free from the passions of the flesh that wage war against our soul. That's what Peter called them. We're not free from the temptations that lead us into areas of sin. So we confess our sin. We, we are honest about our sin. And we press into Christ and say, if not for you and your sacrifice, how could I ever take these at all? And we take the Lord's Supper repeatedly and regularly. Now, there's no specifics. Uh, this is the frequency. This is, but what we do see in this passage is him talking about it as often as you take it, taking it regularly. Make sure that your heart, that your attitude, that your perspectives are right. Do this in remembrance of me. Baptism, that's a one-time event. It's the initiatory sign of the covenant. I am a believer in Christ. I am united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what we talked about last week. It happens one time. As a believer, being baptized, Jake would never have to be baptized again. As a believer... Being baptized, you never have to be baptized again. It is the initiatory sign. But the Lord's Supper is the ongoing, regularly, repeatedly taking of the Lord's Supper. And so we've decided to take it every week. So that every week, every week we have the opportunity to proclaim the death of Christ to one another. So that every week we can sit in a place where we hold physical, tangible elements To remind us of a physical, tangible moment in which Jesus Christ hung on the cross in our place for our sin so that we can remind ourselves of the physical, tangible benefits of being found right now in communion with Christ. So that we can be reminded of the physical, tangible elements that one day when we step into glory, we will grab hold of in real, tangible ways. And nothing, absolutely nothing in this life can take that from us. That's why we celebrate it Every week so that we can be encouraged and nourished by the truth of the gospel. Let's pray.